Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 15, page 1242 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We are back to our study, the Gospel of John, and I'm very excited. I've been for quite some time looking forward to John 15. This section of John we're calling Lean In. Remember the first section we called Encounter, where Jesus was encountering all those uh, various people in various ways in the first section of the book. And then we moved on to follow as Jesus was giving us uh, this extensive study of what it means to follow Him. And now, uh, we're in this upper, upper room discourse. This conversation is continuing after the washing of the feet and the celebration of the uh, Passover meal. And so we're going to lean in because Jesus here, you, you notice some you know, interesting things about just opening your Bible to John chapter 15. How many words in John 15 are not read? That's the only chapter in Scripture where you see that. It's a moment, not that red letters are more important than black letters. They're all the Word of God. It's just a point that we need to lean in here. Jesus is doing all the talking. There's not, there's not back and forth. It's not He said. It's all He's just teaching. Very instructing. on Some very important things. So we're going to have to proceed slowly because this is one of the more essential passages of Scripture for success in the Christian life that you will ever here and ever have the opportunity to understand. And so we really want God to give us great clarity. So let's pray and ask him to help us. Okay. Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, I know that in the trials and tribulations of life in this world, I know, Lord, there are many of us here this morning who come to church as if we just got blown out of a whirlwind. And Lord, we cannot hear what You have to say this morning unless we get still for a moment. Calm our hearts. Clear our minds. Breathe deeply. And then proceed slowly into what You have to show us. God, thank You for the potential that lies in this conversation. And how, Lord, there may be some here this morning, I pray, whose lives forevermore will be changed by understanding what you desire to say to us here. So we ask for ears that we might hear rightly, hearts that would receive that we might live this truth out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we lean in, the master storyteller. 
the one who, if you just, for example, spend a year in the Gospel of John like I have, you just get amazed by the the creativity that Jesus uses and the various ways that He attacks the same realities to uh, just to, to bear His love out on us, to, to help us to understand the truth that He wants us to understand. And really to know what it is to have life in Him. So let's read John chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Let's stop there. Now understand who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to 11 people, his 11 disciples. Judas has left the scene and is now uh, plotting the Lord's betrayal. But look up at the very last verse Of chapter 14, the very last phrase says, Arise and let us go from here. They have moved from the upper room. And so they're presumably walking along. They, no doubt, because we know um, that in chapters 15 and 16, uh, they're walking along. Jesus is teaching. When we get to 17, Jesus is praying. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In chapter 18, Jesus will be betrayed. So they're walking along. We know where they're going. So they're presumably, uh, they've left out of the southwestern gate of Jerusalem. They're making their way down through the Kidron Valley. And they're walking along. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us if as they're walking, they walk past the vineyard, although that would be very plausible. But regardless, Jesus then turns this conversation with his his disciples, these men who have spent three years with him that he has poured himself into. And he turns this conversation to this vineyard idea. And I think what he wants us to know first is we shouldn't presume that we grow, we should first ask the question, why? Why can we even grow? So number one on your listening guide is, why can we grow? Why? Why would that even be a possibility for us? And the answer is, relationship. 
that the reason that we can grow, the reason that we have the privilege in this unbelievable possibility of growing is relationship. Now, look at verse 4, for example. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we're the branches. So the first way we need to understand this is not to think too highly of ourselves. Because in this parable, if you will, we're twigs. So that's what you are and that's what I am. You're a twig, a stick. And, you know, basically, the only lasting significance that we may have is totally dependent upon being connected to the vine. The branch, think about it, the branch is disconnected from everything if it's disconnected from the vine. The vine is what's connected to the ground that has the roots that draws up the nutrients. That everything that's going on in the plant is going on in the vine. The branch is simply hanging on and receiving its nourishment and its, its resources through its connection. But we're talking about relationship. And first thing I want you to notice is just in the passage we read, just in the first nine or so verses, you see over and over and over, you see you, 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 or if, if the Bible were translated by someone from Mississippi, it would be y'all. Jesus is talking to these 11 people and He's saying, y'all are branches. Y'all, you, you, you. And it's telling us something. In other words, that you abide in me. I abide in you. Now, there's a lot of different ways Jesus could have said this, but He didn't. He said it this way. In other words, He's trying to get us to see something that we say a lot and that will not be new information to anyone in this room, but my goodness, I hope that you don't miss the significance of what I'm trying to say. Our relationship to Christ must be personal. Now listen, if you're in a Baptist church, you, you couldn't possibly not know that. It just would be impossible. But everybody says, well, you have to, you, you have a, I have a personal relationship with God. I have a personal relationship with Christ. But believe me, saying that it's personal doesn't make it personal. Jesus is very specific here in using, in the language that He's using. This, this pronoun, when He's saying, listen, you abide in Me, I abide in you. It's very intentional, it's very specific. It's, it's meaning that of the multitude of ways that people, that men and women over the course of history have tried to relate to God, in all sorts of ways other than personally. 
People have tried to relate to God ceremonially. People have tried to relate to God through performance. People have tried to relate to God through their lineage or their heritage. People try to relate to God through their, uh, their tendencies or their, uh, you know, their, what they do every week. All sorts of different ways people try to relate to God. And all of those ways don't work. The only way you can relate to God is personally through Jesus. It's the, he's the door. He's the only way. And again, we use this language constantly. And sometimes I think that it's to our detriment because it becomes too familiar and then we take things for granted and we miss something so essential that if you miss this, it doesn't matter what else you hear, it's not going to work. Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to show you something from the Old Testament. These verses will come up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 5. Look at what the Scripture says. Let me sing to my well-beloved a new song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard, verse 1, on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, who cleared the land? Who tilled the soil? Who planted the choicest vine? Who, who built the tower? Who made the wine press? Who did all the work? Who did all the effort? Who prepared everything for the vineyard to be successful? It had nothing to do it had nothing to do with the branches. It had nothing to do with anyone but the one who, who owns it. What more could I have done for my vineyard? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. For the vineyard, verse 7, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, this section of Scripture from Isaiah would be utterly familiar to the 11 men Jesus is talking to, right? They all know this. They have grown up in a context where they understand that, that they, as Israelites, are God's vineyard. They, they know that. They understand that. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the true vine. You're starting to get the picture now? 
He's saying, you have been understanding this. You have grown up with this understanding that you're God's vineyard. But you produced wild grapes. You've missed the whole point. Jesus comes along and says, now I'm going to explain to you why. I am the true vine. I am the way that you connect to God. The only way to connect to God is through me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, look at these verses from Luke chapter 20. So we, we're, we've got an Old Testament context. We have a teaching that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 20 where He says, verse 9, these will come up on the screen. A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers. And he went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully. So they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see what Jesus is talking about here, does it? He's telling this parable to a group of people, including the Pharisees, religious people that are surrounding him in Luke chapter 20. And he's saying, the vineyard owner has been sending servants. Who are the servants that have been beaten and cast out? The prophets. I sent Isaiah, and you didn't listen to him. I sent Jeremiah, and you didn't listen to him. I sent Ezekiel, and you didn't listen to him. Prophet after prophet after prophet I sent into the vineyard, and you ignored, ignored, ignored. And you not only did you ignore them, but you treated them spitefully. You ridiculed them. You mocked them. You shunned them. Then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? Well, what do I do with this vineyard, with these people who refuse to respect my servants? He says, I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance might be ours. They're threatened by what they may lose by this one who comes. Verse 15, so they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Why? Why did they say certainly not? Remember their understanding of what's being said here. Then he looked at them and said, What then is it that is written? What did 
we just sing. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Now, what am I trying to get us to see? Don't you see the danger of trying to relate to God in some way other than a personal relationship with Jesus? Don't you understand what happens when we try to relate to God through ceremonies or through performance or through some, some of the... There's a thousand different ways that people today try to relate to God wrongly. And it yields nothing. It yields nothing. They want to relate to God. Maybe even under the guise of Jesus. But they, their relationship is not personal. Their relationship is not on His terms. It's on their terms. So we've devised this new hybrid Jesus that can be related to on terms that make sense to us. You see, it's easy for us to look at, at the, the Jews and look at the Old Testament and to see in Scripture where the Pharisees were so wrongly trying to relate to Jesus. But why is it so hard to see how prevalent that still is today? That I have a relationship with God because I, because I come to church. I have a relationship with God because I do certain things. I have a relationship with God because I'm a member of some place. I have a relationship with God because I've gone through some ceremonial ritual. I'm a, I have a relationship with God. But He doesn't... He doesn't dominate my life. He doesn't rule my life. He's not the Lord of my life. He's just a part of my life. I have a relationship with God just like I have a relationship with my children's sports teams. I have a relationship with God just like I have a relationship with the place I work. I have a relationship with God just like I have a relationship with my extended family members. I have a relationship with God just like I have a relationship with my hobbies. I have a relationship with God and it's just one of the various boxes in my life. And when two boxes collide, then I just make a decision which one will win. It's just up to me. There's not one box that always rules over all the other boxes. You see, that is a ceremonial Old Testament way of trying to relate to Jesus. That's making something up that doesn't exist. There is nowhere in the New Testament where you will find this Jesus that can be related to in some half-hearted, however-you-please way. He doesn't exist. Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
Meaning, it's, it's the same as saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the vine. It's the same way as saying, I'm the door. I am the one. But you cannot just by saying, well, I recognize that you're the vine, doesn't mean that you're connected, that your branch is connected to Him. You don't determine that. I don't determine that. He determines that. We can't just have a relationship with God where we put God on the shelf. can't do that. You can't have a relationship with God where you're not surrendered to Him. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. It's not just sort of, I'll do the things that I can do when I can, when it's convenient, when it works out. No, the first distinguishing characteristic of a person who is truly a disciple is that he or she is connected to Christ. They're in Christ. They're connected to Christ. And it's a real connection. And it's a personal connection. And everything else that Jesus is going to teach us in John 15 is connected to that. Everything. Which answers the question. Why are there so many people in the church today who aren't growing? Let me ask you a question. Can a branch be connected to the vine and not grow? It cannot. So before you can ever get to Jesus saying, well, if you abide in Me, you will bear much fruit. Listen, you can't just leap over everything and get to there. He's merely saying that the fruit is the byproduct of the connection, of the relationship. And the fruit is the validation that there's a connection, that there's a relationship. So you can't just presume that you can grow. Because the only way you can grow spiritually is relationship. And the only way you can have a relationship with Jesus is according to what Jesus says a relationship with Him is. This is the problem with just rushing into John 15. So many times when I hear people relating to this text, they're just leaping in and making all sorts of application. And nothing ever changes. Nothing changes. And nothing ever will change unless there is a genuine relationship with the vine. It must be a genuine relationship. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next couple of weeks, the rest of this morning and the next couple of weeks, talking about that. Because certainly Jesus doesn't want you to be confused about that. Certainly I don't want you to be confused about that. Certainly I know a lot of you in this room right now are 
Having a conversation with yourself in your head. And so let's make sure that we don't deceive ourselves, but we look at the Scripture and figure this out the way Jesus said it so that we know exactly what He's talking about. So why can we grow relationship? So really, the million dollar question now is, well then how? How? How can we grow? And that's where this whole conversation comes in about abiding. The reason we can grow is because there's a relationship. The way in which we grow is through abiding. Now the word abide, it simply means to remain. It means to, to, to make your home in. To, to stay put. So you can to depend. You, you can interchange abide with remain or depend. In other words, you could, you could read the verse, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You could say, remain in me or depend in, on me and I in you, as the Branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine or depends on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me or depend upon me. So, how do we abide? Well, I think here in this section of John 15, there's at least five ways Jesus tells us. We're certainly not going to talk about all five this morning. But we will talk about Two. Two ways that we abide. Now the first thing you want to understand is that if Jesus is talking about abiding and we want to know how to abide, then what we need to do is we need to read the entire passage and figure out what Jesus is telling us in the context of the passage that's talking about abiding. Now, certainly there are other places in Scripture that will fortify and build up and give, give us further understanding of what abiding is, but we can't be coming up with some random ideas about how we abide in Christ apart from the context of the conversation. So look at verse 7, for example. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words, abide in you. You shall ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So there's an indication of one of the ways in which we abide. We abide in His words. We abide in His words. Now you see, what's so wonderful about this conversation is, is that when we started talking about relationship and what personal relationship with God is, if we just ended there, if we spent the entire morning talking about that, then many of us mentally would slide off the slope into some sort of wrong understanding of the Gospel, get ourselves tangled up into some sort of legalistic viewpoint or some, some sort of performance-based salvation or relationship with God, but 
If you look at what abiding is, it will just eradicate that from your heart and from your mind. Abide in his words. Now, what is it to have Jesus' words abide in you? What does that mean? Well, I would say at least two things. First of all, it would be to, to take in the words of Scripture, to, to understand the Bible in such a way that you're, you're, it's very different from reading the Bible for personal accomplishment or intellectual assent or reading it for inspiration. It's ingesting it into you and taking in His Word in such a way, let me give you some illustrations, that we might have His Word abiding in us to form our identity through His words. One of the ways that you would know that God's Word is abiding in you is that you understand who you are based upon God's words. His words form your identity. And the reason why identity is so important is because what you think about yourself and how you see yourself tells me and the world around you an awful lot of how you understand God and whether or not His words abide in you. You see, if you know who you are, based on what God says about you and your purposes and your understanding and your, that your security is founded in what God says, not what people say, not what you say, not what the culture says, but what God says. His words abide in you when they are the central driving mechanism by which you understand who you are. Another way would be when His words abide in us, they form the way we see the world around us through His words. That our worldview is shaped by, dominated by, driven by His Word. So when you watch the news, you, you listen to what you're hearing and, and see what you're seeing through the filter of what the Word of God says. You understand the reason people are the way they are and the reason why sin exists and the reason why terrible things happen and the reason why they're suffering and the reason for all of the things that you experience and see are through the filter of the Gospel. That tells you that the Word of God is abiding in you. But so many times, so many times, God's Word uh, may be rattling around in our heads, but it's not shaping our identity and it's not forming our world, our worldview. Now, think about all the ways that the Scripture talks about the Word and how it works in us. For example, in Psalm 19, where the psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's what I mean by ingesting the Word of God. That you take it in. That it absorbs into you to your innermost being. Remember in Colossians where the Apostle Paul says, may the Word of God dwell in you richly. What does that mean? 
dwell in you richly. That, that is way more than saying, you know, may you get up every morning and have a devotion time. May you be a reader of your Bible. That's completely different than may the Word of God dwell in you richly. If it dwells in you richly, it abides in you, it, it changes you and transforms you, it defines you. You understand all the things that you understand through the lens of Scripture. Now, where does the Word of God abiding in us become most evident? I mean, there's a lot of answers to that question. In other words, I think the Word of God is, becomes evident in our closest relationships. I think if the Word of God abides in you richly, that will come out in the way that you treat your spouse. I think it would be evident if the Word of God abides in you and you abide in His Word, that would be evident in the way that you raise your children. I think that would be evident. I think it would be evident in the, the tone of your tongue and the words that you use. I think it would be evident. I think it would be evident in all sorts of ways. But I think it would be most evident where? It would be most evident in crisis. Because if you really want to know if the Word of God, if you abide in God's Word, if His Word shapes your understanding of your surroundings and what goes on around you, then let the rug get jerked out from under you and you're going to find out. And the people around you will find out. Because the way that you respond to fear and uncertainty and danger are going to reveal the truth about your heart. So, if you find out tomorrow morning that you've been laid off from your job, which instantaneously causes a chain reaction in your mind of all of the implications of that reality. The people that you're responsible for. The obligations that you have. The people you love. How are you going to provide for them and care for them and watch over them? Your job's gone. What do you do? Do you in that moment Breathe in deeply and say to yourself, I'm to be anxious for nothing. Jesus, if you care for the birds in the sky, you promise that you'll care for me. It doesn't mean that you don't care that you've lost your job. It doesn't mean that you don't take your responsibilities seriously. But what it means is that you understand that calamity 
by what Jesus says is true about His children. If you get a phone call and on the other end of the line is a first responder and they ask you if you are and they say your name and you can hear the chaos in the background and they say there's been an accident I need you to drive down to the hospital as you're driving down to the hospital Is your heart not beating out of your chest? Of course it is. Is your blood pressure not elevated extremely? Of course it is. But are you ranting and raving and screaming and yelling and out of control and dialing the phone all over the place and in a state of sheer panic? Or do you, as you go, Rattled. Upset. But knowing. Knowing. That nothing can separate you from the love of God. That nothing can take you out of the palm of His hand. That whatever may come, He's going to go through it with you. That whatever happens when you pull up in the parking lot of the hospital, whatever, whatever's there, no weapon formed against you can prosper. You see, that's when God's Word abides in you. That's when you know it. It's when the chips are down. When it's... When you reach, see, in panic, our priorities are revealed. I remember uh, I was uh, preaching a revival service in a local church here in Harrison County, and my son was, I believe, 15 at the time, and he had just gotten his learner's permit. And so he came with me and uh, was there, and when I got done preaching, uh, we walked out in the parking lot. We we're going to get in my truck to go home. And he said, Dad, can I drive? And knowing that I had just preached the Word of God and felt the Shekinah glory all over me, I said, sure, son, you can drive. Now, it's not like he hadn't driven me before, but it had always been in the context of you're learning, I'm teaching, you know, we're in the parking lot, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But this was the first time. Here's the keys. I'm in the passenger side. Take me home. So off we go. It started out very uneventful. And we eventually ended up on Highway 53 and we were zinging down Highway 53. Everything's going fine. It's dark. It's probably, you know, Nine o'clock at night. And as we approach Highway 49, the big test, 
I sort of feel myself pressing back into the seat a little bit. My feet are kind of straightening out down onto the floorboard. And we have a green light. And so he's maintaining speed through the intersection. And inside of me, I'm going, you should slow down. You should slow down. You should slow down. And out of my peripheral vision, I see this giant three-quarter ton diesel pickup truck coming southbound just as we're approaching the intersection. And clearly, he's not planning to stop. And once I realized he's not stopping, it was literally so late in the situation that there was there was no hit the brakes. There was nothing. We're both going full speed at the same place at the same time. And I just distinctly remember, I just closed my eyes and just shouted instinctively, Jesus! And at that moment, he jerked the wheel, went through the median where there's a ditch, jumped, there was a a stop sign or a sign and a telephone pole. He went between the two in the ditch. The truck goes airborne. We're now on the wrong side of Highway 49. I'm in the air. No tires are touching the asphalt. I've got a brand new driver sitting over here like this. But I'm alive. And there's no traffic coming that way. We hit the ground. He turns through the grass, back onto the road. And I'm just sitting there like, and he looks at me and says, that was pretty good. (laughs) I don't even think I said anything all the way home. I was just trying to discern spiritually what had just taken place in my life. The point of that story is is that I didn't have any time to think. There was no stop, hit the brakes, turn, watch out. It was too late for watch out. Watch out was over. And what just flew out of my mouth was Jesus. Mostly because I thought I was about to see Him. But you see, it's in, it's in tragedy. It's in the deepest, darkest valleys where you find out what really abides in here. Because everybody, everybody will tell you that they believe God's promises when it's good, when it's easy. So the first thing Jesus says about abiding is you abide in His words. The second thing He says is, look at verse 9. He says in verse 9, As the Father loved Me, I also 
have loved you. Abide in my love. So the second thing is to abide in his love. Now, I'm not even sure how we're going to approach this conversation. Because I have thought and prayed and asked God just to give me some capacity of language that I have never possessed before. Because that's what it would take for me to make commentary on John chapter 15 verse 9. How in the world could it possibly be that the Bible says, as the Father loved me, the, the love that is shared between the Father and the Son, that, that unattainable, unimaginable degree of love, the, the, that perfect love, that love that has existed for all eternity, the love that a father has for a son who's perfect. There's no, there's no earthly love like that. There's no love. No, you can't love a spouse like that. You can't love a kid like that. You can't love anything like that. It's totally inconceivable, that love. The same love that exists between the Father and the Son, Jesus says, that's the way that I love you. Just think about that for a minute. That I love you in a perfect, unbelievable, intimate, fully knowing, ever-glorious, flourishing kind of love. Now, to get your head around this, you have to think about Jesus' statement, well, then in light of this, abide in my love. You see, a branch doesn't enhance the life of the vine. A branch doesn't make the vine healthier. The branch is utterly dependent upon or sustained by the vine. So you have to understand the, the relationship. If we're the branch and He's the vine and we're abiding in His love, we have to just make sure that we understand that no branch is enhancing the life of the vine. No, no, no branch is is furthering the ability of the vine to do what it does. That, that's not how it works. So, the Christian does not grow according to how loved we are by God at that moment. You don't... You don't you don't grow as a Christian. You don't grow in your, your understanding of God. You don't grow in your relationship with God. Depending upon the degree to which God loves you during some particular season of your life. 
You see, the minute, the millisecond that a person is born again and becomes a Christian, the very instant that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit and adopted into his family, in that millisecond, that person is loved and forgiven and as precious to God as they can ever be. There's no... He's not ever going to love you more than He loves you at that moment. And He will never love you less than He loves you at that moment. That is what is so critical in understanding the role of being a branch. Is that the branch is not determining the vine. The vine is determining the branch. And so, therefore, the behavior of the twig is not what is creating the success or the happiness or the joy of the vine. You understand? So there is no treadmill of Christianity. There is no ongoing performance trap of, you know, if you do the right things, if you say the right things, if you go through the right, jump through the right hoops, then God's going to love you more. And if He loves you more, you're going to grow more and you're going to understand what abiding is. Because we, and the reason we struggle with this is because we don't want to abide with people we don't like. None of us do. And so we think that in order to abide with God, we need God to like us. So we begin to try to perform and try to make Him like us. And if He likes us more, then we can abide with Him. And if we abide with Him, then we'll grow. What a lie. Now, God's love for His children, it knows no increase or decrease. There are no degrees. There's not degrees of love. It doesn't work like that. To be in Christ. This is what you got to understand. To be in Christ. Not to say that you're in Christ. Not to wish that you were in Christ. Not to hope that you're in Christ. To be in Christ is to be forever perfect in His sight. Forever. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of what you're facing. Regardless of what's going on around you. To be in Christ is to be forever perfect in His sight. That is an earth-shattering reality when it settles into your heart. Because we are so driven to pervert this and twist this. No. So what in the world does Jesus mean when... Because I'm, I'm, I'm done with the as the Father loves me. That's all I can say. You just have to go meditate on it for a week. But then, after He says, the same love that we share is the love that we share. Now abide in that love. What does that mean? What? what? How do we, what do you mean abide in that love? We 
And if we don't grow based on performance, if we don't, if there's nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less, there's nothing. If that's true, then how do I grow? How do I abide in His love? What Jesus is trying to tell us is that we grow as a branch through the increased awareness of how He loves us. The way you abide in the love of God is by continually becoming more and more conscious of what that love is. The magnitude of that love has to just bombard your heart relentlessly over and over and over and over and over. And it never gets old. And when you think you have fully grabbed a hold of it, it then shows you again that it's even better than you ever thought it could be. You see, abiding in His love. So, so, I mean, we need we need some practicality to this conversation. Because if, if you walk out of here and you're saying to yourself, I need to become more aware of the magnitude of God's love for me, you would be exactly right. But how would you, how would you quantify that? How, how, would you, how would that manifest itself in your life? What does it look like when a person becomes aware of just how much God loves them? Well, you... You have to think in terms of what the Scripture says here. In other words, you have to ask yourself difficult questions like, if I were to be absolutely sure, I mean utterly sure, that what Jesus says about the way He loves me, that He loves me in the same way that the Father loves Him. If I was absolutely sure of that, could I feel jealousy towards another person? Could I? Could you? Could you, could you feel and be envious? Of, of someone else, of what they have or what they do or who they are? 
If you knew that God loved you the same way the Father loves Him, could you envy? Could you be jealous? Is it possible that you could have a handle on the fact that God loves you in such a way that it is equal to the love between the Father and the Son? Could you refuse to forgive? Is it possible? The only way that you could... Be unforgiving is to not know how you're loved, is to not understand what you've received. The only way you could be jealous and feel slighted, the only way your heart could be envious is if you don't understand, if you don't abide in the love. If you know that God loves you the way He says that He loves you, then when somebody rejects you, It's not good. You don't like it. But in light of how you're loved, does it devastate you? Does it, does it cause you to shrivel down? Or do you rise above it and say, well, that hurt and that wasn't good. But my Father, man, how He loves me. When my heart tries to lead me astray down a path of, of envy or coveting or materialism, do I stop and say, wait a minute. Do I need that in light of what I have? In light of what I have? Are you kidding me? Is there a trinket in this universe that can stand against the reality of the way that I'm loved? No, sir. No. Think about, think about what hinders you this morning. What is it? What is it that's in your life that you know is displeasing to God? What habit, what activity, what discipline or lack thereof? What is it that you know needs to change? And then ask yourself this question. Would a person who knew, really knew how much God loved them, would they act in that way? Would they do that? Would they participate in that? Would they watch that? Would they listen to that? Would they say that? Would they believe that? No, they wouldn't do that because what they have is infinitely better. The reason we do is because we don't abide in His love or the love that we abide in is small. Which is why Jesus says, okay, brace yourself. I'm about to tell you about this love, so hold on to something. And he says, the way the Father loves me, that's the way I love you. And then he says, abide in my love. Because if he just says, abide in my love, and leaves us to our own devices, then what love are we abiding in? The love that we understand or make up or come up with? or It's certainly not going to be that love. 
faith. Faith, I mean real, genuine belief at the core of who we are. Faith in what God has done. Faith in who I am in Christ. Faith in what it means to be in relationship with Him. Faith in that. Faith, not, not, not just faith in Christ, but faith in what is true about Christ. Faith in what the Bible says about Christ. Not what we think, what Scripture says. Faith in that releases the life of God in you and me. That's what sets us free to, to grow exponentially. That's what makes us come alive. That's the core of all of this Jesus is saying. That's why He says, listen, I know you got this vine thing. I know you've heard this before. So He doesn't say, I'm another vine or I'm a vine. He says, I'm the true vine. I'm the vine that everyone's been searching for. I'm the vine that solves all the mysteries. I'm the vine that erases all the, the, the man-centered striving of the thousands of years previously. I'm the vine that has always been the answer to the problem that man faces. I am that vine. You connect to me according to what I say and everything else is going to resolve itself. That's what he's saying. Think of all the things this changes. If you, if you begin a journey of abiding in the way God loves you, how does it change the way you respond to and perceive what other people think of you? It is so radical, the change. What does it do to the way that you steward your life and your resources and your, your, your thoughts and your priorities? Everything changes. Real, genuine transformation. You wouldn't, let's be honest, you wouldn't be in church this morning. If you didn't desire change. You didn't get out of bed this morning and come to church. Because all you want to do is stay where you are. We're here because we want to change. And God's saying, you want to change? Here's how you change. Real change is not being told what I ought to do for God. That's not the path to real change. The path to real change is believing what God has done for me. It's essentially just preaching the gospel to yourself. But make sure you have the gospel right. So the way you do that is you abide in His Word. And you abide in His love. And we should point out that there's a little snare waiting for some of you in the very next verse. So all of that was verse 9. 
And look at what the very next verse says. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We can't leave this morning until we have a conversation about this. So many people read this and they think, oh, abiding in Him is conditional upon me keeping His commandments. I understand. And they get right back on the treadmill and they go right back into neutral and nothing ever changes. Look closely at what that Scripture says. Jesus does not say that His love is somehow a reward for having kept His commandments. That's not what that says. It says that one of the ways that we remain connected to Him in relationship with Him, the way the, the branch stays connected to the vine, we're connected to His love, the way that we remain there is by keeping His commandments. The keeping His commandments is produced from being connected to the vine. It's not conditional. There, there will be no keeping of His commandments apart from connection to the vine. So here's the way I would always say it. Believing rightly precedes behaving rightly. It's just the, it's just the, the lie of that Christianity and, and a relationship with God is behavior modification. That's just a lie. All that is is the flesh. Listen, there won't be any change in behaving until there's a change in believing. But when believing gets right, well, of course behaving's going to change. That's all verse 10 is saying. So if we asked ourselves the question, well, how many of us would, would love to bear fruit in our lives for the glory of God? Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Or aren't you here this morning thinking, Lord, I just want to bear fruit for you, for your glory in my life. Well, then ask yourself this question. What brings glory to God? What brings glory to God? It's not a complicated question. What brings glory to God? And the answer to that is, Jesus brings glory to God. That's who brings glory to God. Jesus does. Jesus does. And so if me and you want to bring glory to God, want to bear fruit for the glory of God, then what we need is Jesus, His life, lived through us. That brings glory to God. That produces Fruit. That's what this whole conversation is about. The Christian life is not, hey, let's roll up our sleeves, grit our teeth, get after it. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be so diligent, we're going to work so hard that God's going to love us so much and we're going to grow like crazy. That's all man-centered. It'll never last. You'll burn out. You're never going to get anywhere. Nowhere. That's going to flame out just like your New Year's resolution to go to the gym every day. That thing died a month ago. Well, let's don't bring it into Christianity. Mm -mm. We need to know what our role is as a believer in bearing fruit. Here's some definitions for you. First of all, fruit. Fruit is the life of the vine pressed through the branches. That's what fruit is. The life of the vine pressed through the branches. 
disconnect the branch from the vine, zero fruit. Impossible to bear fruit. No possible conceivable way impossible because it is the life of the vine pressed through the branches. You see, if you, if you read this whole passage about bearing fruit and abiding, it's interesting. There's only one command in this whole passage. There's only one imperative in the whole entire passage. Do you know what the imperative is? Do you know what the command is? Abide. There's no command for you or I to bear fruit. Do you know that? None. Nowhere does Jesus say, hey, you, you belong to me, I died for you, bear fruit. He doesn't say that. It's not in there. You know why? Because you can't do that. He does it. We have one job. Abide. One thing to obey. Abide. When we remain, when we depend, when we abide, fruit happens. It has to. It can't not. Where there's no abiding, there can be no fruit. So then fruit, we could also say, is the life of Jesus in me being lived out through me. So that we have some context as we move forward over the next couple of weeks and think about all this. What we're talking about here is the life of Christ lived out through me. So all of this is not about Behavior modification. It's not about striving to get God to love you. And if in your mind right now you're thinking, so let me just see if I understand this right. What you're saying, Pastor, is that if, if I really want to grow, if I want to experience transformation in my life, I should just do nothing. Well, of course I'm not saying that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, no. No, no. You have to do something. Make no mistake about it. Abide. Let His Word dwell richly in your heart. Abide in His Word. Daily. Approach His Word in such a way that you want to take it in. Like it, you can't take it in at, at giant clips at a time. You have to take it in bit by bit and piece by piece. You can't shove an entire cake down your throat at one time. You have to eat it one bite at a time. So you have to eat it one bite at a time and you ingest it and understand it and believe it and adapt it into the way that you see yourself and the way that you explain the world around you. You abide in that Word. Well, you can't abide in something you're not interacting with, but you have to interact with it in the right way where you're abiding in it. And then is love. You, you have to abide in that love. You have to, you're, what you do every day is, is your goal every day is to just grow in your awareness and your consciousness as to how much God loves. He, he, his, his love is so extravagant. It's so mind-bending the way He loves us. And see, I'm not 
I'm not nearly as blown away at the way God loves you as I am at the way He loves me. Like, don't get me wrong. I love you, and I'm pretty excited that He loves you. But it's not, it's not the way I feel about His love for me. And do you know why that is? That is because I know me. I know me in ways I can never know you. And the fact that He knows everything that I know about me and more and still loves me that way, that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So our lives need to be an outward expression of an inward nature. See, it's just an outward expression of what's our nature inside has been transformed. Somehow, some way, in the economy of God, He loves us that way. What that does to our heart. Let's stand and bow our heads.